So, hi, Larry. Larry Atri, you are the head of global policy and advocacy at one of the organizations closest to my heart, uh, Safer World, which I'm also proud to be associated with. Uh, you have worked over 16 years in, uh, in this field for various uh, organizations. Uh, you have a long list of, of, uh, of uh, assets in your, in your CV. And um, what I wanted to speak with you today is the problem we have in Sweden of seeing the whole picture, so to say. We just had a, a big uh, news item today on the, on the Swedish media about the new... AidWatch report, uh, which Concord has put out, uh, uh, expressing worries about uh, how development aid is being used for purposes which are not in line with, uh, with uh, what one would want to see in view of the 2030 agenda. And of course, this is nothing new for you. You have worked on this topic for a very long time. Uh, I've also been involved in it, uh, maybe on more on the institutional side, on the EU side since 9-11 basically. Uh, I have followed this. I've also myself worked in Africa. I started my, my work as a diplomat in Angola in the very early days. So you've been always, uh, from my perspective, I've always been there trying to see how can we make a difference to the better or are we actually doing things uh, to the worse, and and you you have just tweeted out uh, a very interesting picture the other day about the vicious circle, which I suppose you want to address today. Uh, but maybe you would want to say first a little bit about yourself and uh, about Safer World and why Safer World is particularly well placed to have a view on these issues. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity to. Um talk about these issues which are amongst the most pressing issues facing Europe and countries like Sweden um, around the world. Myself, as you say, I've been working at Safe World on and off uh, for 16 years. Um, we're a non-profit think-and-do tank um, that works to promote peace around the world. Most of that work, maybe 85%, is work with communities um, towards addressing security problems and conflict drivers in conflict zones. But we also work to encourage better engagement to address instability in just and lasting ways by international players. And uh, we know that's uh, very necessary if we're going to see uh, lasting shared security around the world. And you're actually out there, aren't you? I mean, as an organization, you're out in the field in some of the most difficult circumstances. So it's for you extremely important that you are perceived as a good force, so to say, for peace and, 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 uh, and uh, conflict resolution. Yes, that's right. So we began as an organization that was encouraging people to work towards better arms controls around the world um, to stop arms flowing into conflict zones. And from there, we got more and more involved in what people are actually doing with the weapons on the ground. So today we work in contexts like um, Somalia and South Sudan and Yemen, where obviously the people living in those countries are beset by deep problems of instability uh, fragile institutions um, and 
um, we both try and work directly with people to solve the challenges that underpin their security problems and uh, try and think structurally, systemically, how do we fix these kind of decades-old problems of conflict uh, in these contexts, which involves thinking through the politics of what's going on, uh, why elites are behaving the way they do to consolidate power and wealth, um, and using violence often as a tool to do that. Um, so we're trying to make a practical difference and trying to connect what we've seen and worked for on the ground with the changes that are in, needed also from international uh, players who want to be friends of these kind of countries. Yeah, so, so obviously you are very exposed and you have many people who are doing a fantastic job out there in very difficult circumstances. And, um, but still, uh, you are not just only looking at the thing, so to say, locally, but you, you have a very strong local engagement, but in your advocacy, you're also um, proposing a more holistic perspective on things. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've seen over the last few years, not just a rise in uh, the number of conflicts taking place around the world, but also, you know, the analysis is that the places where it's proving hard um, civil conflicts, which are in, intensely internationalized in terms of external players having interests at play there, whether it's in uh, countering terrorism, uh, countering what's seen as irregular uh, migration, whether it's trade relations with some of the uh, actors um, involved in those conflicts. Um, and you can't necessarily solve those kind of conflicts um, and those kind of problems by only looking locally. You have to be looking for solutions that are grounded in what uh, people see as the right answers and the things that are important for their well-being. But you have to be pressing the international players to respect those things. Um, and so, yes, um, we are increasingly trying to bring that people's perspective and a civil society perspective to international policy debates about conflict and instability. And before we go into the more, more precise, uh, what you call the vicious circle about European migration control, conflict and displacement and other, other so to say, bad processes in terms of... Uh, uh, development assistance, uh, security-related assistance, and what that means for for Europe, for domestic policy, and so on. Can can I have a word with you about the concept of security itself? Because I have um, a background uh, from uh, from the OSCE, for instance, where we worked already in, from the 17th with um, a comprehensive concept of security, which included human rights, the rule of law. Uh, democracy from 1990 and onwards and this was very much in the east-west dimension of course uh, looking at uh, uh, creating a new framework for cooperation and security and cooperation in Europe but that has also then very much influenced the debate inside the EU uh, particularly when we started after 9-11 to to look at how to uh, create a comprehensive uh, security perspective, integrated solutions and, 
and uh, uh, of course being aler um, alerted very early to the problem of radicalization that uh, what if what you do wrong in the field might actually radicalize people to to become terrorism radicalize into uh, to terrorism but basically still continuing to try to develop also the UK pushing for an integrated approach with everything put basically in the framework of a security perspective. And you have been fairly critical towards some of this work, haven't you? We're probably on the same page um, in the sense of this understanding of um, security as something which is inextricable from uh, people's security, human security and human rights. Um, so all around the world, we have studied the factors um, that lastingly peaceful societies have in common. Um, and I think they boil down to five things. They work to reduce violence and ensure the public feels safe. They ensure fair access to justice, livelihoods, resources and services. They enable voice and participation in decision making and constructive resolution of grievances. They have lower levels of corruption and bribery and they're not um, so exposed to external stresses so things like flows of arms drugs conflict commodities illicit finance um, so when people um, uh, sort of strategize for the achievement of security my my, my main questions always come back to whether they are advancing progress towards those five kind of core elements or whether they're trying to take shortcuts which potentially undermine them. And I think what we've seen in recent years in the name of trying to contain unwanted uh, migration, in trying to stave off the risk of terror attacks from rebel movements with their roots in conflict settings, in terms of sort of trying to maintain strong relationship with you know partners that are seen as wealthy um, and maybe as strategic partners um, the likes of Saudi Arabia for example um, that people have tried to take these shortcuts towards um, security in ways that risk undermining those five conditions even though we, we have all the evidence about how important um, they can be in preventing conflict and the observation from this research that we've done which is now quite an extensive body of research over the years is that these shortcuts tend not to work and that we are seeing a clearer and clearer picture that if you're prepared to try and trade off uh, quick gains in counter-terrorism or, or migration control against uh, human security and human rights that um, over time the, the, the problems and threats are going to get worse um, and so a lot of our policy work is about trying to bring those messages home and strategize with policymakers on what their options really are if they want uh, lasting solutions um, to to their security challenges. Reminds me about uh, a problem where, which I met when I was in the EU structures and we had a, quite a number of uh, crisis situations during the years when I worked there from 
1996 to 2011, and that is that you, when you had a crisis, people would say uh, very loudly that uh, uh, never again, now we, we must do everything immediately to do to sort of avoid that this happens again, and then you would mobilize a lot of political will and possibly also money, and then you would, uh, uh, you would basically shout at uh, uh, the bureaucrats to see to it that these, this money is dispersed in new programs as quickly as possible. And what I found when I wrote my book about EU and security in 2015 is that much of that work went out without a serious impact assessment ex ante, as we say, you know, uh, uh, just trying to figure out how will this work in practice and what will be the real sustainable effects, uh, sustained effects of that work. So that we, 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 uh, we have, uh, of course, after 9-11, we have it in the interventions in Iraq, in Afghanistan and other places. Uh, but we also have it in, in general counter-terrorism work. And, and the question is whether we also have it in, in migration controls now. Well, I think, you know, that's a, a, a very timely question to be posing. Because we are um, right now in, in a period where we've seen... Uh, a sort of uptick and 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 spreading out of what we've sort of called the European border security model, which has been evolving, you know, over the last twenty one years since the Council's high level working group on asylum and migration set up in nineteen ninety eight, through the Seville summit, through the formation of the European Border Agency Frontex through the global approach to migration in 2005, through the Rabat process, uh, you know, up to uh, things like the Khartoum process, the European agenda on migration um, and its four pillars, the Valletta Agreement, the EU Emergency um, Trust Fund for Africa. Um, and and th through all these agreements, you see a, a thread of um, emphasis on things like safe legal movement of migrants, protection, rights, development, but also a sort of growth in steadily more uh, focus on hard security solutions um, outside EU borders um, to deal with um, increasingly frequent migratory crises. And as we look forward at this juncture, um, we're set to see a big hike in funding for migration and border controls under the EU's uh, new multi-annual financial framework. Also the proposal for um, a large uh, European uh, peace facility uh, that could be worth 10.5 billion euros um, to expand, train and equip assistance to EU partners. Um, and other changes in common and security, uh, common security and defence policy missions, um, so that they increasingly take on counter-migration um, roles. So the point that you make about these increased investments being very cognizant of the track record of uh, European engagement, and we're not just talking about assessing whether they've cut migrant arrivals, but also their impacts on repression and instability in Europe's neighbourhood. Um, it's very important that that track record is understood 
and factored into the way forward by European governments and, and decision makers um, because there are clear risks on um, doubling down on an approach which could prove counterproductive, more repression, more conflict, and yes, more displacement and possibly more migration over the long term. If that is not what Europe wants, then it needs to look at the evidence of what does and doesn't work. What I find when I talk to uh, different types of people about uh, the problems that they see uh, in Sweden, we can I can refer to a debate that was on the Swedish television the other day about um, uh, what to do uh, to manage the the rise of. Uh, uh, difficult regions and and parts of cities in Sweden, which are uh, where integration doesn't work of migrants, basically. So, uh, from there on, politicians argue that we have to uh, go slow on migration for a while until we get that house in order, so to say. So that's one discourse, uh, which is quite defensive, um, outsourcing. Uh, the second discourse is the one. Uh, which I'm also involved in, uh, you know, what do we do about Turkey, Syria, what do we do about Libya, Niger, and all that, uh, where where um, uh, you have these new European instruments, uh, question, can Europe make a difference now when uh, we don't know what the Americans are going to do, uh, when, when the Russians are on the move, uh, when the Chinese are becoming more active, and so on. Uh, uh, then uh, many people discuss, do we need to be more of a powerful actor uh, as EU in the world? Uh, I hear the new high representative Borrell in front of the European Parliament talking about uh, Europe as a powerful international player, whereas when I listened to Mogherini recently, she more spoke in terms of assisting, so to say, the neighborhood. Um, so, and then you come to the third discourse, which is the one that you are now pursuing, namely to avoid mistakes that might hit back at the objectives that we have, uh, uh, that we have and which then link up this uh, vicious circle from uh, go again creating more uh, domestic uh, policy problems and more populism in Europe, possibly. So, um, I, I appreciate your, your effort to try to get... Uh, get a bigger picture and more thought into this, uh, to these processes. Um, Niger seems to have become a very interesting case in point. Have you studied that particular case? Well, uh, yeah, Niger is, um, is um, a context which is um, a, a case study in our latest uh, report on uh, EU migration uh, controls and their impact on stability uh, in Europe's uh, neighbourhood. Um, and what the case study shows is that um, from 2015, Niger has been a hotspot for EU interventions on migration. Um, and the EU has tasked its common security and defence policy mission, uh, the EU CAP Sahel Niger, um, with focusing on irregular migration. Um, and of this, I mean, they'll be played up over the coming few years. But what we've already seen is that Niger has adopted uh, harsh laws against human smuggling 
under EU pressure, um, uh, as well as getting security and policing support to help prevent migration. Um, and the government there has used the threat of migration to leverage more funding and political backing um, from the EU in spite of the sort of corruption and repression uh, risks um, that exist. So Niger has become one of the biggest recipients of EU aid per capita in the world um, with over a billion euros of uh, development assistance going in uh, from 2014 to 2020. Um, but there's this imbalance in what's being offered. So lots of EU member states are in Niger providing training, providing equipment on the security end. Um, but by contrast, when it comes to the food needs of the population, the World Food Programme could barely raise a, th a third of the funds needed to feed a tenth of Niger's people in 2018. So you see the imbalance. And when there is that inattention to those dynamics of um, people's needs and the, the state society relations and how giving a lot of security assistance um, to a government in such a context can skew state society relations and disempower people. Uh, we're worried when we look at contexts um, like Niger. And we're also worried to see that the clampdown on migration there has undermined some of the livelihoods um, in the context which often depend on cross-border trade and movement. So in places like Agadez, a vibrant economy becoming shut down, it's become a much more kind of tense security in, environment with things getting more and more militarised. Um, so you look at contexts like that and make the observation that the net effect of uh, focusing on migration and things like counter-terrorism with a short-term need may to reinforce maybe to reinforce issues that could drive significant problems down the road and the EU as an actor that has the capability of looking at the big picture that's not uh, a big picture and a net result that it should uh, favor so we think that kind of example um, and there are others um, prompt prompt a, a rethink um, on these issues. As you say, it's difficult because there are these quite intense pressures on European uh, politicians uh, domestically to um, reduce immigration um, and to think about issues like integration. Um, but I think, um, you know, a couple of comments uh, there. One thing is that a lot of these pressures seem to stem from um, concerns about um, marginalised uh, populations in European countries feeling uh, their access to jobs, their access to services, things like that are being uh, threatened by migration. But sometimes buying into that narrative and uh, the idea that migrants only represent a burden rather than a contribution to European uh, economies um, can be problematic. What may be useful is for European uh, politicians to focus on alleviating the socio-economic pressures and reinforcing the rights of their populations at home 
at the same time as reinforcing the protection and rights of of uh, migrants. But another thing is that to say, well, we need to protect Europe from having to adapt to the presence of migrants is looking short-sighted because if you say, okay, to do that, we have to contain migrants in buffer zone countries like Turkey and like uh, Lebanon, um, that also creates a number of problems in those kind of countries, which in coming years will end up becoming Europe's problems. So the pressure on a country like Lebanon or of the people in the country uh, being uh, a refugee of, of, of one origin or another, uh, those pressures are obviously massive and far outweigh the pressures um, within Europe and could prove destabilizing in unwanted ways in years to come. Similarly, our report documents that in Turkey, uh, numbers of migrants being contained in the country under the EU-Turkey uh, deal um, uh, are creating um, some significant uh, socio-economic um, tensions as well as you know, a range of uh, other impacts. It's understandable why these pressures have worked the way they have in Europe, but uh, to the extent that they're distracting uh, from a bigger picture, um, Europe's not necessarily helping itself in terms of, uh, of the way it's responding. Um, I think uh, maybe at this point it would be useful to uh, say a few words about megatrends because uh, I spoke to, to the uh, development aid minister in Sweden the other day about these issues. He just came back from the DRC and we spoke about the size of the population in that country uh, where the projection is that it, uh, it may be uh, 400 million in uh, some decades from now. And uh, we are looking at in Nigeria, which might be 700 million people. Uh, we, we are looking at uh, future mega cities in Africa around Lagos and, and so on. And uh, we are looking at uh, uh, ecology, ecology uh, the climate change. Uh, we are looking at uh, uh, seven uh, children uh, born by each, uh, on the average, by the women in, in, in Niger. Uh, so it's importance of Africa for Europe, which we haven't yet quite understood, I think. We are talking about several billion people, an additional billion people until 2050, possibly. And we have a coastline to Europe, which is something like uh, uh, 10,000 kilometers from the Canary Islands to, to up to the northern part of the Greek archipelago. So um, one would assume, in line with what you are saying, that we have to find a, a more uh, long-term strategy to create a positive relationship with this uh, continent. But still, uh, we have the problem that we have, uh, of course, uh, important organized crime uh, problems. I mean, we have even in Sweden, a sizable Nigerian mafia organizing rather brutal human trafficking throughout Europe, uh, starting in Italy. And we have um, links between different, uh, different strands of organized crime, uh, 
uh, along the routes that we are mentioning, where, where the route through Niger is a central one, there is also one along the coast, uh, the Western Sahara coast, and there is one going through uh, a, a more western route through Sudan, etc. So uh, to find a, a way to deal with this, uh, not just by repression and negative perceptions of Europeans, certainly would be very important. I um, fully th agree. I mean, these are some of the sort of massive global issues uh, which are going to have to be handled in coming decades. Um, but, you know, the thought also occurs. That, so when we look at these issues uh, like uh, climate change, uh, resource scarcity, growing populations, um, the risk uh, posed by uh, organized crime, uh, war economies, the rise of transnational uh, violent movements. Again, I, I come back to a, a, a core issue which European leaders today seem at risk of uh, forgetting, uh, uh, which was you know, clearly understood in the Cold War era, and that's the threat posed by the spread of authoritarianism in Europe's uh, neighbourhood um, and the importance of expanding democracy and human rights in the world. Because it's only through having a functioning, accountable, inclusive political institutions and governing institutions in the context that you're talking about that true partnership approaches um, to addressing tomorrow's challenges are really going to be uh, possible. Authoritarianism, for all the other issues on the table, is still the number one issue driving instability all around the world today. We know that 99%, and this has been true for years, of terror attacks occurring in the world today occur in conflict-affected and or, and or repressive countries. If you want institutions that can deal uh, in a foresightful and benign way with uh, climate uh, challenges, resource competition, shared water rights. We need to be dealing um, with um, governments that are on a stable uh, footing um, and not using that violence that I mentioned at the beginning as a tool for consolidating their wealth and power, but really seeking to deliver public goods mediating between the competing interests of different groups, trying to uh, use the rule of law effectively rather than to, you know, use um, violent movements or uh, criminal uh, networks, um, you know, as kind of convenient enemies in order to further their interests. So I would really, you know, in response to those trends, still put the issue of governance and finding strategies to transform authoritarianism right at the top of the list for European uh, foreign policy and gear all efforts towards sort of designing uh, programs and interventions with an eye on how it, it, you know, not so much building the capacity of, of partner states to govern, but uh, changing uh, the incentives 
um, and behaviours of those governments in, in their approach to how they govern. Uh, and nowhere is that more important in term, than in um, thinking through very carefully um, these plans to train and equip the security sector of of the partner governments that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, with an eye on those very big investments uh, being debated even next week between European ambassadors uh, into the security capacities of, of governments in, in Europe's neighbourhood. I think th that issue of what the impacts this will, that will have on the rise of authoritarianism need to be thought through extremely carefully. I think this is a very valid comment. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, I spent in my own, own uh, uh, life uh, already when I wrote my dissertation about uh, military aid as, a, as an instrument of influence and power, I found out that uh, the, the countries uh, providing military aid to others uh, often uh, get a backlash, reap something uh, you know, completely different in the future. Uh, weapons can be used for something quite different than they were intended to be used for initially. And uh, with the introduction of uh, military assistance into the European peace facility, uh, Europe needs to, to be very, very careful uh, going forward, uh, looking at uh, what, what, who could be the uh, legitimate recipients of uh, such assistance. We have already had a long-standing uh, relationship with the African Union uh, in the so-called African Peace Facility uh, since 2004, but this is something much more going beyond uh, train and equip as a concept which was debated in a in an extensive public consultation where I believe Safer World participated in the last years. Uh, on the, just uh, getting towards the end of this, uh, this uh, recording, I just wanted to mention that uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Dunja Mijatovic, who is the Commissioner for Human Rights in the Council of Europe, has recently put out a report with essentially the same message that you just put forward about governments and uh, governance and human rights, uh, a very strong plea to member, member states of the Council of Europe to try to, to focus on these issues much more also in the context of the migration controls. You know, this is um, extremely important and the message from us is not to discourage the EU from engaging in these contexts, um, but on the contrary, to design that engagement very carefully, to evaluate it more comprehensively, and to gear strategies towards how are they gonna change the behavior of security actors. So the message isn't don't touch these issues, but the message is really that we're seeing again and again, we've seen over the years of Western intervention in Afghanistan, uh, in stabilization assistance to Yemen, um, in the context of uh, Somalia and in less visible places like Kenya, uh, Tunisia, etc., that um, if you simply seek to build capacities, assuming that you have a shared political agenda um, on security with with partner regimes and and local elites, they will take everything they can get 
from that engagement, but not necessarily uh, solve the problem. They'll follow their own agenda. So what you have to do when designing security engagement is to think about how to transform the behavior and change the incentives. The West doesn't really have the leverage to do that anymore, particularly not with a range of possible partners offering um, this kind of assistance. The leverage for the kind of change that we're talking about comes from society in conflict-affected countries. What is possible as an alternative is um, for uh, actors like the European Union to scale up investment in uh, community security processes. Uh, what I mean by that is is the kind of programs um, that work with communities to identify what their security challenges are, to develop plans for addressing them, plans for communities to engage with authorities, and processes where societies can bargain with authorities and with security uh, agencies um, for better security provision and, and better justice provision. The West doesn't have the leverage to tell people what to do on human rights. However much security assistance is provided, it won't get that leverage back. But societies do have leverage. This is how change happens, the interface between societies demanding a better deal and authorities who hopefully have the right incentives uh, responding to that demand. So if Europe uh, wants to influence for change in security governance, it needs a different model for how it does security assistance. So the message isn't don't do this assistance, it's do it differently and monitor, evaluate and learn while you do it. So, uh Unless you have more to add to this already rather substantial podcast, I want to thank you, Larry, uh, for, for taking the time to discuss with me. You represent an organization also supported by Sweden, and uh, which is active uh, with an international branch uh, in, uh, in the UK, uh, working together with the Europe branch in Brussels, uh, an American branch in, in Washington, and soon I hope something in other places around the globe. So uh, I want to thank you very much for participating in this discussion. It was an absolute pleasure.